All right. Hey, good morning, Grace. If you've got your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 10, and we're going to start in verse 22 this morning, John chapter 10, verse 22, as we continue um, our series today in the Gospel of John. One of the things that I've come to a conclusion about, and it may seem sort of like a truism or obvious, but, but, but that is this, that one of the crucial skills in life for anybody is to develop the ability to spot a tragedy, to discern what constitutes a, a real tragedy. You'd be like, what are you talking about? Like, who can't tell what a tragedy is? But, but some of you know, maybe as parents, and, and especially if you've been parents of small children, um, we have at least five to ten, quote, tragedies every single day in my house, right? Uh, tears, weeping, gnashing of teeth. This past week, uh, the kids found a turtle named Shelly, and they were keeping the turtle, and the turtle escaped. And you would have thought that there was a breakout at Guantanamo Bay. I mean, it was tragic, weeping, and, you know, we lost Shelly. Like, so we all know that for children, there are, there are tragedies, legitimate tragedies, and there are things that feel like tragedies, but aren't. And so one of like, the crucial skills of life is to be able to discern a real and genuine tragedy. It's not just true for little kids, it's true for college students. Um, C-minuses. There are students for whom a C-minus represents a genuine failure. It represents laziness, a kind of shirking of responsibilities and a frittering away of thousands of dollars of tuition money. And that C-minus is something that they ought to feel guilty about. And there are other students for whom that exact same letter grade represents a triumph, right? And I won't ask you to raise your hand, right? But they were like, I, I earned that C-minus. And as a professor, it's my job to differentiate the tragedy of a C minus from the triumph of a C minus because on the report card it's the exact same letter. One of the crucial skills in life is the ability to discern a genuine failure, a genuine tragedy from something that might be a triumph disguised. And one of my favorite examples of this is from maybe the most famous sermon from the last 18 years. And I got a spoiler alert, it was not preached by myself or Pastor Rod. <laughs> it's a sermon that's sort of been affectionately dubbed the seashell sermon. The sea, I, bought, I bought my collection, or we have a big collection of seashells. It was preached 18 years ago by a guy by the name of John Piper at a conference called Passion One Day. I just spilled a bunch of sand. <laughs> Tragedy. Um, so it was, it was preached by John Piper, who's kind of an older scholar, pastor, to a bunch of like college students in a field, like 20,000 college students. And this guy got, walks up. Uh, this isn't the picture of him at the time. He had this sort of long comb over that was sort of blowing in the wind. His notes were kind of blowing all over. And they're like, who is this professor who's going to preach to us as college students? And he preached this, this sermon that is, in the words of the Gospel Coalition, it moved a generation. And it, it was called the, the seashell sermon. And it basically went like this. He, he, he acknowledged that in the past week, two members of his congregation had passed away. These, these two women, Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards, were their names. And they were killed 
in Cameroon, in Africa, when the bus that they were traveling on for this mission trip, the brakes failed, it went over the cliff, and, and they died. And John Piper walks through this, this account. He, he, he tells about these two women. He says, Laura Edwards, she was a medical doctor from the Twin Cities who in her retirement partnered up with Ruby, pushing 80 years old, and went from village to village in Africa, preaching the gospel and providing for the poorest of poor. Ruby Eliason, over 80 years old, single her whole life, a nurse, poured her life out for one thing, to make Jesus known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and the most unreached places. And he says in this past week we had their funeral. And then he asked this group of college students, I ask you, is that a tragedy? And we think of every death in one sense has a tragic component, but he says, look, two women in their 80s, a whole life devoted to one idea, Jesus Christ magnified amongst the poor, the sick, in the hardest places, and 20 years after many of their American counterparts have begun to fritter their lives away on trivialities, they fly into eternity in a death in an instant. And he asked this question, is that a tragedy. And this crowd of college students says, no, no. And then he says this, and it gets more uncomfortable. He says, I will read you a tragedy. And he pulls out a clipping from Reader's Digest. And he says, I know you don't read Reader's Digest. <laughs> I don't know if Reader's Digest still exists. I'm, I'm just hoping readers still exist, right? And he reads this clipping from Reader's Digest that goes like this. It says, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago. He was 59 and she was 51, and now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler. They play softball, and they collect shells. And then he says this very uncomfortable thing. He screams, that's a tragedy. What? Who doesn't like shells? This, I have a shell collection, right? And he's not saying this. He's not saying that it's evil to take retirement. He's not saying it's evil to have a shell collection. He's not saying it's evil to enjoy your life. He's not saying if you want to be a Christian, you have to die on the mission field, penniless, right, and miserable. He's not saying any of that. But what he's saying is, there is this misconception of what constitutes a triumph in this life. And there are people who are willing to spend millions of dollars to get you to buy that vision of what a triumph look like, looks like. And it's actually a tragedy. If your life is geared entirely toward the pursuit of comfort and ease, and if you and your prime step away from your opportunity to minister in the pursuit of, metaphorically or not, your shell collection. He says, here it is, God. Here it is. My shell collection. Right? 
it. He says, that's, that's a tragedy. If that is your aim in life, this sort of pursuit of mere comfort and, and ease. And so you say, why do you talk about that, man? Like, let's, who doesn't, you know, I, I want to retire someday. I do too, right? Why do you talk about that? My point is this, in this sermon that, that, that made a difference. Some tragedies masquerade as triumphs. Some tragedies masquerade as triumph. Sometimes the thing that seems like the good news actually is the bad news. And I've known people who that's been true. Like the best thing that they thought that ever happened to them ended up to be just really terrible. And for other people, the worst thing that they thought that ever happened to them ended up being a really good thing at the end of the day because some tragedies masquerade as triumphs. And my argument today is that the thing in this passage in John chapter 10 that seems like the good news, the, the triumph, actually is the tragedy. The line in this passage that seems like the good news is actually the bad news when we get down to it. And it's worth exploring because if we fail to recognize it, then we're liable to make the same mistake as the people in this passage when they encounter Jesus. The, 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 the triumph is actually the tragedy. And so what is it? John chapter 10, verse 22, we'll, we'll dive in says this. The words will be on the screen. You can read in your own Bibles as well. It says this in John 10, then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade and the Jews who were there gathered around him were saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe the works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. And again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I have said, you are gods in the Psalms? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said, I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but then this phrase, but he escaped their grasp. He escaped their grasp. And you might have noticed from your outline from your update today, that's the title of this talk, but he escaped their grasp. 
And my, my big idea is very simple. It will seem, again, like a truism, but it is relevant, I promise you. It's possible to miss Jesus. It's possible to miss Jesus, to miss who he is, to miss what he's doing, to miss what he wants from you, even when he's standing right in front of you, even when you've been exposed to the scriptures, it's possible to miss Jesus. And if we take this last phrase as a kind of descriptor, in fact, the thing that seems like the good news in this text at the end, this phrase, but he escaped their grasp, is actually the bad news. Because here they are clutching for Jesus. They want to kill him, right? And he escapes their grasp. He does this a couple times. Like, I don't know if Jesus should have played like tailback for OU or what. Apparently he was shifty or something. But he escapes their grasp. And we think, yes, he got away. Jesus, he pulled like a, a spin move or something. He got away. And that's the triumph at the end of the passage. They were trying to grasp him and he eluded them. But it's also the tragedy because the reality is he has been escaping their grasp for his entire life. They have been missing him for his entire ministry, for this entire conversation. They do nothing but miss what he's actually saying. It's actually a theme in, in the Gospel of John and in, in Johannine scholarship. They call it the theme of Johannine confusion because Jesus is always saying stuff and the response of everyone is to just miss it, to just totally miss it. And it's possible to miss Jesus even when he's right in front of us. He escapes, he escapes our grasp in the same way that he escaped the grasp of the people in this passage. And so I want to look at three ways today, just practical ways from the passage that people miss Jesus, that, that I miss Jesus, right? And I don't mean by that necessarily in the full sense that they miss him completely and they die and go to hell. Well, I mean, even for Christians who may trust Jesus or believe in him at some level, we can miss aspects of who he is and, and what he's come to do. And so how Jesus escapes our grasp is kind of the way I want to talk about this. And your update, the first way, I would put it this way. Jesus escapes our grasp, we miss him and what he's doing, sometimes because we value words over works, speech, rhetoric over action, deeds. It says this in, in the passage in verse 24, it says, the Jews who were gathered around him, they were saying this, if, if you're the Messiah, Tell us plainly, like, use, like, like you say to your kids, like use your words, right? Use your words, Jesus. Tell us that you're the Messiah. Tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. And then he says this very strange thing. My works, the works that I do in my Father's name testify. My, my works speak to who I am that I am the Messiah. But the problem is that these people that Jesus is interacting with, maybe a lot like some people today, they want the words, not the works. They want the words and not the works. It, it, almost as if you could say, Jesus is saying, look, 
anyone can say the words, I am the Messiah, right? And Jesus will even say at other points in the Gospels, like, look, lots of people are going to come and say, I'm the Messiah. Don't believe them, he says. That's just words. Anybody can use those words. Anyone can say, I'm the Messiah. My, my testimony lies in what I do, he says, my, my works. And you say, well, what are these works? And it's the stuff that we've been reading about in John's gospel. It's the stuff we read about in the synoptic gospels. It's it, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the dead are raised, the demons are cast out, the poor and the persecuted are, are loved and lifted up. Those are the works. And you say, well, like, that's, that seems pretty impressive, right? Like healing people, um, th- these acts of radical grace, that seems like they're pretty impressive. Like, why would that not do it? And you, you could say that it's because that's not the works that these people were expecting from a Messiah. And it's not the works they wanted. And the key, in some ways, to the passage is the very first phrase that we read. It says here in the passage, it was the feast of dedication. You're like, well, what's that? Dedic- that sounds like a boring thing you got to go to, and you're like, maybe you get a certificate at the end or something. But the feast of dedication, and in, in the modern world, we know it by another name. It's the feast of Hanukkah. Hanukkah. And it's kind of a newer festival, and it commemorates something that happened in 164 B.C., in one of the stories that's not in our Bible, but it is a part of the Jewish tradition. And it's a story that if you want to make like millions of dollars, write a screenplay for this story. It's crazy. (laughs) Because the Feast of Dedication commemorates an event where the wicked, evil, pagan overlords of the Jewish people, at this point, a group called the Seleucids, they were Greeks, tried to wipe out the Jewish people to de-Judaize them. And the way that they decided to do that was to take the most profane animal in the Jewish consciousness and the scriptures and to slaughter it, a pig, in the middle of the temple and to throw pig blood on everything because that would mean like can't worship anymore, can't go to the temple, can't make sacrifices. And then they decided on top of that to hold neighborhood barbecues, which again, for me, it's like awesome, right? but not if you're a Jew, and not if the thing on the menu is pork. And so in the midst of this horrible scene, there's one Jew in particular and his son, a guy by the name of Judas. So if you ever wonder why Judas is a pretty popular name in the first century, not so much anymore. He, he acts out, he says, no more of this. And he grabs a sword, he slaughters the pagan soldiers, he grabs a bunch of his friends, they go off into the hills, they start a guerrilla war against the pagans, and uh, the, the unexpected happens, they actually succeed and oust the pagans. And the Feast of Dedication commemorates this violent, successful revolution in the history of of Israel. Fast forward 164 years, plus some change. There's a new violent pagan oppressor called Rome. And the Jews every year at the festival of dedication tell stories about what it would look like if Messiah came. 
and the stories look a lot like the Tarantino version of Hanukkah. He's going to grab a sword. It's going to be bloody, but he will sit on a throne and our boots will be on the neck of the Romans and we will triumph. And they asked Jesus, are you the Messiah? And that, that whole story is what's in the background. And Jesus brilliantly, as he does repeatedly, won't answer the question. Because when that's in the background of what the Messiah is, there's no yes or no answer that's going to help you. When you ask the wrong question, there's no right answer. And so he says, look at my works. Look at my works. Not just these words. And he ends up being a Messiah whose triumph looks an awful lot like a tragedy. But it's, it's possible to, to miss those sorts of things. That's what's in the background of this question and why he starts talking about words and works. Um, the reality is, I think if we fast forward to our own day, I know about me personally, but probably all of us, we are suckers for smooth speech, for flashy rhetoric. But Jesus says, you will know me and you will know my people by their actions, by their works, by integrity. He says, my works are the thing that will point you to who, to who I am. And, and I think this is true for us, that we're suckers for rhetoric, we're suckers for smooth speech. Uh, I watched a documentary with my wife a couple weeks ago, and there's a picture of it up on the screen. Uh, the documentary is entitled Wild, Wild Country. And it's a story of a crazy cult that set up shop in Oregon, uh, migrated from India to, to Oregon. And it was centered around this guy called the Bhagwan, which is a really fun word to say. I've been saying it a lot recently. The Bhagwan. The Bhagwan. Sri Rajneesh. And there's been lots written about him. There's something written about him called The God That Failed. And there's this documentary, Wild, Wild Country. Um, you know, not that your kids would watch documentaries, but I wouldn't recommend it for children. But uh, he sets up this utopian commune in the sort of Oregon wilderness. It's led by this God man. He owns over 20 Rolls Royces. His followers give him millions of dollars. They liquidate their life savings to fund this, this commune. They take over a small town in Oregon, and they are on their way to taking over an entire county in Oregon because they have, you know, they're bringing in like hundreds and hundreds of people, and it's, you know, it's predicated on an election. In order to take over this small town, they attempt to poison the water supply by throwing beavers into the water tanks. And the beavers won't fit, and so they blend the beavers and pour them into the water supply of this town. They poison the, the food in the town, this massive salmonella outbreak to try to keep people from coming to vote. They import hundreds of homeless people to vote in the election, and then they drug them to keep them sort of docile and subservient. And all of this happens in the United States of America. It's the craziest story I've ever heard. And you look at this story, you're like, okay, hundreds and hundreds of people were swayed by this guy, the Bhagwan, right? 
And like, here he's, he's like, putting beavers in the water supply. There's this just crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. They're like, what, what led you to the Bhagwan? I mean, he seems like a kook. And say, like, no one has ever spoken the way this man does. His words. And I'm like, yeah, but have you seen his works? Because <laughs> the beaver thing would have put me off. You know, I don't know about you, but like, like we are suckers Maybe you're not going to join like a crazy cult in Oregon, but all of us are suckers for smooth speech. And Jesus says, if you want to know me, look at my, my actions, my works. The authentic Jesus is to be found where his works are done, right? You will know we are Christians by our love, right? Not just by our words. He says we will be marked by action. Not that we're perfect, not that we're, you know, that we've achieved perfection, but look for Jesus where his works are being done and begin to value that as much or more than, than words. Second thing, second way that we miss Jesus today and also in this passage, we miss him he escapes our grasp because we are unwilling to become his sheep. Verse 25 says this. He says, The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. He says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. And if you were here last week, if you weren't here last week, go back and download Pastor Rod's message where he talked about shepherds and sheep and what it means that Jesus is a good shepherd and all of that. I won't repeat all of that. But one of the reasons we miss Jesus, I think, today is that we, we miss him because we think we are above a sheep-like status. Pastor Rod talked about that last week. We miss Jesus because we think we are above a sheep-like status. And to be a sheep, you could say it this way, is to admit that you are an inadequate master of your own life. That's what it means to be a sheep, to admit that you are an inadequate master of your own life. And, and to re- use the recovery language that your life has become unmanageable. But for all of us, to be honest, When we attempt to be the master of our own life, our lives become unmanageable because we are, to use Jesus' language, sheep. And that's a very difficult thing for a proud, quote, successful, educated person to to understand. And I say that as as a college professor, right? That like the more education you receive, the, as your salary increases, the, the, more to, the, 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 the tendency for spiritual pride rises. And it becomes more difficult to acknowledge that I need a master because I am a sheep. And we miss Jesus because we think we're above that sort of sheep-like status. And I love this one little detail. Note Jesus doesn't say, you are not sheep. He says, you are not my sheep. That's why you miss me. He's like, he doesn't say, you miss me because you're not sheep. Because at some level, all of us are sheep. 
We all need a master, and we will all be mastered by something or someone. And so the problem is not that you're not a sheep, he says to this crowd. He says the problem is that you're not my sheep. You, myself included, we will be sheep-like to something. We will be sheep-like to something. We will serve something or someone. We will follow something or someone. And so the question is not whether you'll be a sheep. The question, Jesus says, is, Will you be my sheep? Will you be my sheep? And you could say it this way, if we want to apply this sort of in a more practical, pragmatic way. We as people are fantastic at being sheep. We are terrible at choosing shepherds. (laughs) That's the problem. We're nailing the sheep thing. We are not nailing the shepherd choosing thing. And you, and you could look at some examples of how this plays out. And I've listed this under the category of sort of alternative shepherds. Persons or things that we allow to lead us or to master us in exchange or in the place of, of Jesus. And, and maybe the most common thing for all of us, the alternative shepherd, is what the scriptures talk about under the label of the flesh, the, the sarks your flesh, and that's sort of a way of talking about your your selfish, fallen human desires that we all have that become the thing that master us in the place of Jesus, the thing that leads us or guides us or drives us in the place of Jesus. And it can be this, this fleshly desire for sexual gratification at any cost, at the cost of our family, at the cost of ourselves, a fleshly desire for monetary gain at any cost, the cost of others and ourselves, fleshly desire for for popularity or for for celebrity. Um, One of the things I spoke about last time is you look at like the the spate, the, the glut of celebrity suicides, addictions, breakdowns, divorces, at rates that seem even higher than say people who don't have all the money in the world and all the fame in the world and all the popularity in the world. And there is this sense in which giving yourself over to those things, to those masters, ends up destroying us. And we're, we're shepherded by the, the selfishness of our flesh. Another maybe alternative shepherd, Jesus says, you are not my sheep. So alternative shepherd number two, some other guru, some other guru. And again, maybe I'm thinking this way because I watched the crazy Bhagwan documentary, but I've begun to see gurus everywhere. Like we have this need as human beings for a guru, somebody who's got all the answers, right? We need a Bhagwan. Even if you don't move to Oregon, right? Even if you don't dress in orange, I left that part out. We tend to need gurus on a podcast, in print, on a blog, in a relationship, a person, or maybe even a pastor who becomes a kind of functional savior in your life, and the problem is that they can't bear the weight that only God can bear. And so this need for this person to be a guru replaces the shepherding of Christ. A third one, 
We could go on and on. But a third one, maybe it's a political ideology, whether the right or the left, and you begin to take stock of your life and you realize that you are being discipled more by this political ideology, more by cable news, again, on the right or the left, than by the scriptures. And that that need for this alternative shepherd has allowed your heart to be colonized by rival kings and rival kingdoms. Jesus says, you miss me, not because you're not sheep, but because you're not my sheep. And you embrace alternative shepherds that lead you into the thicket of life. And we miss Jesus because of that. Here's the good news. We've gone through a lot of bad news. Here's the good news. Jesus is a better shepherd. He's a better shepherd than any earthly guru you ever find. He's a better shepherd than cable news. He's a better shepherd than me or Pastor Rod or your spouse or your boyfriend or your professor or your girlfriend. Jesus is the ultimate shepherd. He's he's better. And so asking somebody to become his sheep is not asking them to embrace an inferior existence. And sometimes I'm afraid that Christians sort of make it sound that way. That to embrace the yoke of Jesus, the yoke that's actually easy, is to embrace, like grit your teeth for 80 years and then good news, there's heaven, right? Just be miserable here for long enough and then there's this reward. But the actual Jesus says this, I've come to give you life, full and overflowing. He's a better shepherd, not just in the life to come, but in the life right now. He says, listen, no one, next slide, no one can snatch them out of my hand, he says. My fault on the slide. He says this, nobody can snatch my my sheep from my hand. I give them eternal life because I'm a better shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd that we ought to be willing to to follow. Last one, last reason that we miss Jesus both today and in the passage. We are unwilling, we don't let Jesus completely redefine our view of God. We don't let Jesus redefine our view of God And so we miss both Jesus and God, a proper view of God. He says this, and this is the the line that caused them to pick up stones. I and the Father are one, he says. And they're like, well, that's it. (laughs) What object can we throw at you? He says, I and the Father are one. And then he says this, why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe in me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. And you have to imagine for a people, like if there's any people group on the whole planet who would find it utterly impossible to accept the message 
that there's this guy, this like poor son of a carpenter who is divine, the Jews would be that group. It's just like, no, that's like, that's like, you know, five steps toward the Bhagwan for them. They're like, that, that's weird, uh, and we're not going to buy that. Um, the, the Jews have this belief that there's only one God, that he is utterly transcendent, right? And so Jesus comes and says, I and the Father am, are one. I'm in the Father. The Father is in me. Believe my works. And, and, and they find that just really blasphemous and, and unbelievable. And it's the challenge of the Christian life both for them and for us, the challenge of Christianity is to allow this person, Jesus of Nazareth, this brown-skinned, Aramaic-speaking, first-century Jew to completely define your view of God. The scriptures say that he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrew says that he is the exact representation of the Father's being. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. You don't start with these theories that you've concocted about a, what a perfect being would be like. You don't start with, say, the basis or the relationship that you had with your own Father and then project that onto the canvas of the cosmos. That goes bad every time. You, if you want to know what God is like, you begin and end with Jesus. That's why it says he's the Alpha and the Omega. Michael Ramsey has this quote that I like. I'll put it up on the screen. He says this, God is Christ-like and in him is no unchrist-likeness at all. He, he's modifying this quote from the scriptures that says that God is light, right? And in him there is no darkness. But it's equally true the way he says it. God is Christ-like and in him is no unchristlikeness at all. C.S. Lewis says, Jesus is what the Father has to say to us. T.J. Goring says, God is not inscrutable. There is nothing beyond or behind what we see in Christ. Right? He doesn't mean that there's not something called the Trinity. He doesn't mean that there's not a person called the Spirit or a person called the Father. What he means is, in terms of God's character, Jesus Jesus is, is the answer. N.T. Wright says, God has to be again and again rethought around the actual history of Jesus himself. Karl Barth says, the meaning of God cannot be gathered from any notion of supreme, absolute, non-worldly being. It can be learned only from what took place in Christ. God is Christ-like, and in him there is no unchristlikeness at all, right? And you say, well, who cares? What does that mean? Sounds pretty abstract, right? That means when you want to know the heart of God toward you and your failures, you look at Jesus. You look at Jesus hanging on the cross, and what you see there is a person in whose heart is no hatred towards you, a person who loves you so much that he was willing to die, to suffer on your behalf. That's how deep that love and acceptance runs. But at the exact same moment, you look at a person 
when there is no part of Christ's being that is apathetic or indifferent to sin or evil. There's no part of his being that ever looks at sin and says, eh, eh, no biggie. And there is this utter fusion of complete love and acceptance and a complete and passionate commitment to deal with evil and sin and to conform me and you with all of our flaws to his own image. That's, that's the person that we meet in Jesus and if, if we let him define our view of God, it will redefine our view of life and our view of, of one another. It will cause us to rethink our priorities and what constitutes a, a truly successful, triumphant existence in a way that, that challenges the norms of our culture, the desires of our flesh, but that actually at the end of the day takes something tragic and makes it a triumph. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and we acknowledge that just like the people in this passage who are literally grasping for your son, we sometimes miss who he is and even in our grasping, we, we do more harm than good sometimes. And so we pray that we would learn from those who've gone before us in the scriptures so that when we encounter Jesus in this world through his spirit, through his word, through his people, through the least of these, that we would respond rightly, that we would follow, that we would be willing to be his sheep, and that we would be willing to trust that following him is the path to a truly fulfilling existence, a truly meaningful life. Give us, Lord, practical pointers to what that looks like this week, to, to reach for Jesus in love rather than the way that these people are, are grasping at him in this passage. Um, help us to be sheep-like to him as our shepherd rather than buying into alternative visions of, of what the good life looks like or what a savior would look like. I pray for help for myself, for my friends here. May we be your hands and feet in this world despite all of our inadequacies and imperfections and we take delight in that in your name. Amen.